0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness here on YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and who knows what other platforms we've migrated to since. So this week, I am welcoming back Dr. James Lindsay, and he is a mathematician by Uh, education, but has gotten very involved in, um, I guess you could say, critique of social activism uh, amongst other things. He has been on the show before, and I highly recommend that you guys check out our earlier podcast, which I will put a link to in the description section to this video so you can catch up with what we've said in the past, because we've covered, um, talked quite extensively about social justice warriors and and social activism and how that has become in itself A kind of religion or, you know, could be analogized to that in many, many ways. I mean, not accurately speaking, it's not a religion, but it is analogous to it. And uh, Dr. Lindsay actually wrote a whole paper breaking all this down, and we talked about that. So I invited him back because I'm seeing and hearing things that, um, and in a way, experiencing a little bit on my channel right now, a little bit of wokeness. And um, this is a term that I am... Uh, curious about, got interested in, started looking into like, what's this all about? Turns out I'm a little late on the on the whole cycle of the word. It's kind of dying off now, which is probably a good thing. And um, Dr. Lindsay, welcome to the show. And uh, let's go ahead and talk about this.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to talk about with the woke thing. Um, I think that if you want a description of what I do, this gets really kind of in the weeds to even. I figured out what I'm what I'm doing, and it's really it feels good to figure out what you're doing. Um, it's hard to explain what I'm doing, but uh, I'm building a traditional theory of critical theory is essentially what I'm doing, and woke the woke movement falls within um, the the evolution of critical theory as it's been put into practice and in scholarship over the past, uh, we're getting on close to 100 years, 90 to 100 years now. So it's it's firmly within that tradition. And I, I, the, a guy, Max Horkheimer, one of the earliest critical theorists, and we don't have to get lost in this, but in 1937, he wrote a book called Critical and Traditional Theories where he outlined the, the the need for both and the differences between them. And so a traditional theory is what we normally think of as an explanatory theory that tries to understand a thing as it is. And a critical theory is a approach that tries to understand how, um, say a, tri- uh, a traditional theory, a system, a way of knowing, a way of being, or something like that falls short of uh, moral perfection where the problematics in it lie. Oh, that, and that it has
0: means. to be. Yes. I, I, I'm and glad it, you're clarifying this because I didn't even know, I didn't know this. <laughs> this is what a critical theory actually is. And so
1: it's actually different than critical thinking. It's root is in critique, which you can trace back to um, Marx in particular, his his idea of critique. Uh, Karl Marx said that the, the the necessary thing to do is to, to criticize everything ruthlessly. Uh, In order to expose essentially, and this is actually when I say that, that we're talking about a form of critique, The, the point was to expose oppression, and to effect liberation from oppression. So critical theories, that's the moral framework that they have is to expose oppression, and to Uh, create liberation from that oppression or to affect liberation so emancipation liberation liberatory all of these kinds of words liberationism are all associated with the critical theory methodology and um it all depends on, of course, where people see power happening. The critical theory school had its beliefs about where power was. The postmodernists have their beliefs. Libertarians have different beliefs, but some still take up critical methods. So I am trying now to create a traditional theory, an explanatory theory of critical theory, uh, because it seems like, as, as you just kind of reacted, you know, nobody has a clue what's going on. And a lot of what's happened Frankly, since the magic year is, for many reasons, 1968, since then, we have essentially had a proliferation of critical theory throughout society, and both on right and on the left, and that's how our culture war has become so gnarly, and that actually gets us to wokeness, which is one side of that culture war, as I said, takes up a particular vein of critical theory as it's evolved through history.
0: Fascinating. So, we're being critical of critical theory. We're being purposecacious about critical theory,
1: but nobody knows what purposecacious is. No, well, I was means. just
0: about to say, what was that word? <laughs> it's like I learned
1: that word and I was like, this is the word I've needed for so long. And then it's like, shit, nobody knows it. So, I don't know what to do. Um, it means knowing what you're talking about. Oh. I, I, so, a, a purposecacious theory is something that knows what it's talking about, it knows the details, it knows the ins and outs. As opposed to something that's just, again, the, the difference being with traditional theory, you're trying to understand those things. With critical theory, you're just trying to criticize and point out how it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, since I know there's like roots to atheism here, a a traditional theory of religion would try to understand religion and you know, what it does, how it behaves, what characterizes a religion – Uh, What psychological inputs or sociological inputs are relevant to religion and so on and try to create a very robust understanding and model that maybe tries to understand it on its own terms and on outsiders terms a very big thing, a critical theory of religion, which is what a lot of the atheist movement ended up being is just saying look at this bad thing that happens because of religion look at this other bad thing that happens because of religion and you can tell when somebody gets caught up in one of these critical theories because they start to see the problematics everywhere so they're driving down the road and they see like you know McDonald's 1 trillion served or something like that and they're like that's because of religion you know <laughs> they're seeing it everywhere and that that's actually kind of what happens with 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 critical theory and uh it turns out, like I said, the, the vision in the original in the Frankfurt School is what it was called, uh, the Institute for Social Research. that so was set up in, in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, and migrated to Geneva, then to the U.S., uh, both in New York City at Columbia and in um, L.A. I don't know how I don't know exactly where in L.A. Uh, Theodore Adorno set up camp. But anyway, Southern California and New York City were the two main beds in the U.S., And so their original idea was that traditional theories, in other words, science, (laughs) enlightenment, philosophy, and, and so on, are not sufficient because they leave these spaces where problematics happen that cause oppression and prevent liberation from oppression and even allow the rise of fascism so we have to go in and problematize we have to add this extra dimension critical theory to show where the under, unexamined assumptions are to question that which isn't being questioned to look into the role of biases and self-interested power and all these so they said we need to add this in and then what happens is it turns out critical theory is really easy and, and traditional theory is really yep. hard and so what happens when you set that loose in the masses is that most people aren't doing the hard thing. They just do the easy thing. And it actually becomes sort of addictive because you get massive amounts of social cred, which is addictive, dopamine city, by dunking on something or by throwing out a hot take that goes viral. These are all critical theory tools, hot takes, dunking, it's critical theory. That's right. So that's a very good point. Yeah, it's, it's really a fascinating, it's almost like the internet was made for both critical theory and in particular postmodern, you know, denial of universal truth and, and so on. It's like an interface with postmodernity. And so now yeah. we're like, oh, crap. That's right. I was
0: gonna bring that up. It seems like it's built on a bedrock of, of um, postmodernism, postmodern theory. And it seems that um, Twitter especially is built for this. <laughs>
1: As I have said a few times now and in writing, Twitter is a deconstruction machine. Yes,
0: it really is. And and talk about unintended consequences. I mean, do you think Jack Dorsey put that together with that in mind? No, I
1: think he was literally thinking it would be fun and cute yep. to create a platform where people just put out their brain farts. Here's what I'm doing. It's. I think his original idea, if I recall having seen and read an interview about this or something was that you know it's like you're in a coffee shop and you hear the twittering voices around you and if you could actually hear what people are saying and you know you pick up little snippets of conversation it's like how do you how do you put a platform for that and then i mean when twitter first started i wasn't there when it first started but i got involved before it got really insane and It was a much friendlier and simpler place. And, you know, the tweets, it was very difficult to understand what the point of it was because it's very much like coffee shop chatter. And then somehow politics landed on Twitter and the whole place, it's like, it's like a freaking nightmare. It is, I think, genuinely a deconstruction machine. You can't put anything out there, especially if you have a decent sized account without it just getting ripped to shreds. I mean, the last thing I tweeted before I sat down to talk to you on the podcast, I put something about saying that we're wokeness as it turns out in education isn't going to go away until people start to understand it and fight against it and like within seconds some guy writes back to me it's that won't stop it either Mm -hmm. and it's like it's just everything you put it's like tears it down you put some kind of you know you put here's my lunch and they're like that's gross or it looks terrible or how can you eat that or you know that's bad for you or it's bad for the planet it's just you know there's thousands of people ready to jump on just about anything it tears apart any meaning that might have been in the thing that you thought you wanted to share and puts it in terms of others other people's uh ideas so this is like it'll deconstruct a person I think I'm being deconstructed (laughs) actually by it and what I've been telling people like when they ask me it's like well what's up with, with all that if I get talking about it and I'll say I feel like I live entirely in other people's thoughts now like I'm not allowed to have my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. I have to live entirely in other people's thoughts mm-hmm. and that's not good. <laughs> so I don't think Jack Dorsey intended that we would all live in each other's thoughts like and and be torn apart psychologically by them. But uh, here, we, here we
0: are. That's right. I've called it the id of the internet, right? It's sort of our collective yep. id uh, yeah. to go Freudian, which is, you know, loosey goosey terminology, but it works. And it's, I saw a neuroscientist that called it the amygdala of the internet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it's um it's interesting. I, I wanna I wanna go on this, I wanna go back to this critical theory thing because I'm I'm still kind of like, oh wow, that's actually a thing. I because you had referred constantly to critical race theory, and I really didn't quite get I I was thinking, I was sort of making up a definition for it in my head of. Oh well, they're being critical of ideas about race, and you know, and and putting it into academic terms, and therefore it's critical race theory. But I, now that I'm seeing that, now that you've explained this this other way, I'm like, oh, I get this, because yeah, you see this all throughout the atheist world, and and I'll and I'll say that I think as time goes on, it sort of it sort of reminds me a bit of the stages of um, leaving a, a a belief system. Uh, an extremist, or I, I could say extremist belief system, but really, I think almost any belief system, when you wake up uh, yeah, yeah, that belief system, suddenly you're aware of what here's what here. Okay, tell me if you agree with this. You get part of a group, you know, you are all about its beliefs, principles, mantras, ideas, you buy into it, you think it's all great, you tend then psychologically you understand why this happens you tend to only look at the pluses avoid the minuses cognitive dissonance your way through problems because every group has problems every group has drama mm-hmm. every group has issues right um yeah not just i'm not just at the human level either but at a at, a, at an ideal level there are problems yeah yeah there's no perfect system no perfect group so you ignore that stuff because that's how we're built Because you can't be Mm -hmm. part of a group if you're constantly harping on all the outnesses. That makes you not a group member. And in fact, what happens is you get so involved in the group that your ability to think critically about it descends to almost zero. That's when you hit extremism. Mm -hmm. But then somehow, at some point, something wakes you up. Something makes you realize that there's something critical about this, something bad about this, that you can't cognitive dissonance your way through. It's it's undeniable. Usually that's why it has to be a personal event. Because that's what really hits people is when stuff hits them personally. Um right. so something like that happens. Suddenly you cannot deny that this outness exists, and suddenly that makes you aware of this outness and this outness and this outness. Suddenly you're like, oh my god, I didn't see this before, I didn't see this before, I didn't see this before. And now all of the luster is off, right? The, the, it's tarnished. And now you're like, oh, well, this wasn't what I thought it was. True enough. True enough statement. Mm-hmm. It's not what you thought it was. It never was. <laughs> <laughs> you then go, oh, my God. And depending on the level of betrayal or, you know, moral, you know, whatever that hits you, your response will then be, Oh, this is not just not good. This is bad. Yeah, yeah. This is awful. This is misrepresenting itself. This is abusive. This, And maybe, of course, like with Scientology or destructive cults, there is actual abuse. Right, but right. But that doesn't actually have to be there for what I'm describing to happen. Correct. You know, and then you become whoop, and you turn right, and there's this there's this turn that happens, and when the, and during that period, when that first happens, just like you're in the position where when you first join the group, you can't imagine anything bad about it, you then flip to I can't imagine anything good about it. Correct, and then yeah. you have a whole stages to go through, you know. Right, I call that stage throwing rocks at the cathedral. There we go. And you're doing that. And I think for most of us, that's a stage. It is. I think so. Yeah. Uh, that's, and I wanted to, yeah. So, what do you think about that little layout I'm making there? It seems like if I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think it's exactly right. Um, it, the psychological processes involved are probably complex, mm-hmm. but. You know, that is the, you know, big picture description. That's kind of what I figured out probably in 2013 or 14 that led me to sort of change directions entirely and kind of start dissociating myself from the atheist movement as it was. And even I wrote a book, you know, within atheism, if you will, that was critical of the atheist movement um, that I published at the end of 2015. I wrote it through 14 and 15 combined and published at the end of 2015. And I think that that's accurate. I also think that it's a phase that you do have to go through to kind of psychologically untangle yourself from that. uh, It's called parochial altruism, Mm -hmm. where you've been forgiving the inside group and blaming out groups or whatever. And it's like you kind of have to like undo that for yourself. So all those lies that you told yourself (laughs) to convince all along, it's like you kind of get pissed off at yourself or something and then you you throw the rock at the cathedral and blame the, the system that that tricked you into believing it. And I do think like I said, it's a phase and it's also a phase that you should grow out of. It's you know you work through that whether you do externally or not and then you should grow out of it. And the issue Starts becoming when you turn it into a you know the the only allowable way to theorize or conceptualize that thing. So within atheism, you know it's just all religion is bad all the time. You you never quite get over. For a lot of people who left religion um, and became atheist activists, it was very obvious and still is when it happens. Very obvious that they're pissed. (laughs) At at the church. And if they never finish working through that, and it's all just religion's always bad, it's, it's bad in all its forms. And they just keep throwing rocks at the cathedral. That's actually I mean, that's sort of where it becomes this, this critical theory thing. Because it's, like I said, cheap and easy to to do a critical exactly. theory. Exactly.
0: So now let's... Okay, good. So so if I'm on the right track here and we're talking apples and apples, then let me now extend this out a little bit further and propose this next stage of this, which is the activist, the, the critical theorist. And I've been a critical theorist against Scientology, against religion in general, of course. Same here. And now that I have had the time... And distance to look at and I've done been doing nothing but for the last seven years but looking at this stuff really hard um, I think I've now moved over to the more general you know traditional theory look at this because you start recognizing oh no there's not all bad there's good here and here and here and I if I'm really going to be intellectually honest I have to acknowledge that and if you're not lost in a moral mm-hmm. fog of or trauma because a lot of people are trauma survivors and that has its own psychological baggage and its own relevance yes big time um and that kind of foments and continues it because trauma survivors definitely have all kinds of of uh feelings of survivor guilt and you know the spectrum is wide um right But where I'm trying to go here is, um, so a lot of people tone down, figure things out, come out of the critical theory mindset, go into more general theory, go, oh, yeah, no, it's actually there's good and bad. And let's kind of have, you know, more nuanced conversations about this. But there are those who um, become activists, become popular for that view, and um, therefore kind of have to maybe some people feel like when they get in that position, they have to maintain that point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what happens in the, in the little evolution of ideas here is now this person is, is pushing this critical theory and people who've never had anything to do with this one way or the other, that's their first exposure to this topic. Mm-hmm. And they buy into the critical theory as the ultimate truth about this entire topic. Cause that's all they've heard. Right. And I think that's where a lot of these students are sitting.
1: Right. Being, That's exactly, exactly right. We're right. being
0: taught by these guys who never came out of that critical. They went into it for whatever reason they individually had, and there could be a panoply of reasons, but they are now stuck in this postmodern critical race theory, critical gender theory thing. And it's this position and they've built a whole empire on it. And uh, now we're going to teach these kids and these kids now get this because they have no life experience, and so they go, "Well, this all sounds very smooth, smooth, and put together, and and sensible because look, there's oppression, there's black people getting killed, and there's minorities being oppressed, and so this must all be true, right? And now we have a cult, right? There <laughs> so you go. Right. And I think that's how it rolls out. I don't know what do. You, so, what do you think?
1: I mean, I think that that's generally probably the correct picture. Uh, what I kept thinking about when we were talking about, you know, most people grow out of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, some people don't. They end up just, they, stay, they have their reasons or the reason might be that it's become their job or they've gotten a lot of status out of being a critical theorist. I, You know, famous ones like Judith Butler you know, as a critical gender theorist come to mind. Mm -hmm. It's like, how is she not going to do that anymore? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's everything of her career stretching back almost 40 years. How is she not going to do that? Besides the fact that she's just trained herself to think that way so deeply at that point. But there's always a fresh crop (laughs) to bring in. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to point at things. I actually like that you brought up it sounds really weird to phrase it this way, but I like that you brought up the black people being killed thing as being something you can point at, Mm. because again, this critical theory is happening from multiple directions. Uh, Generally a critical theory is, is trying to spin a narrative and control a narrative because it thinks that everything is narratives. And Mm. so the recent example in the news of the, the, the black jogger who was shot. And then now you've got this very complicated story coming out, you know, mm-hmm. new piece of information here, new piece of information there. And so I was thinking about it the other day, and it's like you have the right-wing narrative, oh, he was doing something repeatedly, illegally in these properties. Somebody decided they needed to do something about it. And then the next thing you know, They grab the guy's, the the guy, you know, grabs his gun. The second he grabbed a gun, it's self-defense, he gets shot. So that is actually a narrative that's not telling the whole story. So now, of course, the kid's just a thug or whatever. And then the other side of the story, you know, comes out. There's just a lynching and all of this, you know, some white guys chase down this black guy and this is what always happens. And black kids have a, you know, particularly high level of, of risk and, blah 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 so the one side saying well black people are more often criminals the other side saying and so they're just tapping into these things that are kind of true and then just running with that to create a narrative and and to it, you can see that it's like something's bogus here where the real story you try to tell the real story is very complicated very difficult to tell so you can't just point and say see another black guy got shot or C, he was a criminal. It's very easy to just see there's the one thing, story told. But the real story probably is what I started to tell and a bit more complicated is that he was doing whatever he's doing in those properties for whatever reason. It probably – the people who own the property or people who decided they were going to do something they were aware of it decided they were going to do something about it. Rather than doing what you're supposed to do, or maybe they even did, they tried to, I don't know if they got tried to get the cops involved, but a lot of times the cops won't get involved for low-level stuff. They're just a waste of resources. Whatever reason, they decided they're going to take this into their own hands. So you can see, uh uh-oh, now we have a bad decision happening here. And then they decided to take it into their own hands with guns. And so now, you know, they end up chasing the kid down. And at some point, you know, they pull out their guns and they tell the kid this or that or the other thing. At that point, they've actually violated the law because they're brandishing. It's illegal to point a gun at somebody. So when you get the story, so there's probably all this give and take, you know, in the story. There's probably this complicated set of events and series of events that led to what actually happened. And that takes a lot of work to explain. It take That's kind of the, the, the key thing here with critical theory is that takes a lot of work to explain where if you instead have this kind of like broad arching narrative, oh, well, white people kill black people because of racism. And then you say, see, here's another example. Or you you have this broad arching narrative. Um, something's wrong with black people and they tend to be criminals. So, oh, he was in that property. You know, there it is. They tend to be violent. He grabbed that guy's gun. And it's like, I don't even know. It's what we were just talking about, about, you know, the parochial altruism not looking at the details like how do you not notice that the gun had to be pointed at him first before he grabbed it like that seems relevant (laughs) yeah but um so it's it's very likely that um it's you know causes of things are very difficult to suss out figuring out the complete story of something building a traditional theory of the thing is actually a lot of work it's not psychologically satisfying it does not fit into a partisan narrative of see that's the one thing that i needed to communicate so he was absolutely right or he was absolutely wrong and you know that's sort of the thing and if you if you inculcate people into thinking that way and in particular not just in a partisan way but also into thinking oh wow there are these systems of power that are created by whatever they happen to be created by and whether it's systemic racism on the one side whether it is um the Government, if you look at certain branches of libertarians, if it's uh, you know that the 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 leftist agenda to basically let let you know criminals get away with stuff or whatever, you can think of different like systems of power that are causing people problems and then spinning a narrative around that. If you inculcate people into thinking that way, the second they see the story they're just like ah. There it is. There's proof of this ultimately very simplistic narrative and very vague psychological thing, Um, you know, mind reading type thing where you know the person's motivations, you know the the forces. And then you have this not a prescription to, to solve the, the specific problem, but now we're going to change society completely in order to address the problem somehow, because society, the whole system, that's sort of what's at the heart of critical theory. So, you know, you could say in this particular story, the right wing wants to be liberated from the oppression of you know, thugs being able to get away with it and people not integrating into society, all these things that they think are bad for society and that are systemic problems that are perpetuated, in this case, by an ethic of multiculturalism, which I kind of agree with them. Multiculturalism is a problem. It doesn't actually work. There are other solutions, pluralism, for example. Um, and then the other side, you have people that are spinning this, this idea that, oh, systems of power are racism. Everything comes down to how races are treated. And the thing is, is there's actually grains of truth in both, but neither one is that, here's that word again, purpose understanding of what's actually going on that can allow people to find problems to solve. So instead they just think, oh, well, the system is the problem and the system therefore needs to be changed. And on
0: we go. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting, that's a great way of putting that. It got me thinking about how people, you know, this narrative thing is powerful. We, we, we think best in stories. Mm-hmm. I really don't know why, but we do. I think it's because it generates, you know, cause-effect relationships very easily. You, you have heroes. It's it, You know, you get a moral layer very easily with a story. Mm-hmm. And stories can perpetuate. You can expand on stories. So, it, you know, or maybe you could look at it as a jigsaw puzzle. And every little piece of confirmatory information is another piece you're putting in your puzzle to create this picture you already know exists. Right. Because, and that's
1: another thing of how we think, right? We think in terms of confirmation, we don't think in terms of disconfirmation or falsification. So we're looking for pieces of that we're looking for puzzle pieces, we we know what we, we know the picture on the box, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and we're looking for the puzzle pieces that make it come out, rather than we're actually trying to assemble the pieces correctly, so that we see what the real picture is. Um, Nicely. Yeah, Nicely. It's, it's, there's some serious cognitive bias issues. And one of which being this this social identity parochial altruism, you know, tribalist kind of thinking that my side has to be right. And if the other side gets power or gets gets the upper hand, then my side gets discredited and my side isn't gonna you know, so it's bad for the interests of my group at that point. It just it's it we're <laughs> oh, we're, we're unfortunate primates in some we ways. We are,
0: aren't we? I mean, you start really examining this and you realize truth ain't got nothing to do with this picture. It is It is all about perceptions. You know? And
1: it's so hard. That was ultimately postmodernism, right? And it's uh, so hard not to fall into that and right? think that's all it is. And somebody asked me recently, in fact, how do you recognize that and not fall into postmodernism? And it's literally... To reject kind of the one – I mean, it's, it's X-Files, but it's to reject the one thing that Richard Rorty, I think, got most wrong with is – Rorty said it may be that the world is out there, but the truth isn't out there. Mm. No, the truth is out there. There is a tr- – if you, if you just accept that there is a f- – genuine, true story to what Mm -hmm. happened Mm -hmm. and to within certain limits, depending on, you know, historically, you can't actually know everything that happened, blah, blah, blah. But within certain limits that we can actually come to know something about it, there is a truth and we can know something about it. Then you're not stuck in this, you know, everything's perception. There's your truth. There's my truth. And that means there's your reality and my reality. I even saw the other day because on Twitter, I got talking about how, how, the social justice side of things hates objectivity. They see it as a as a myth, and so I even saw somebody saying, "There's," I, and I ended up mockingly saying it again. Is like, "There's your ob- objectivity and my objectivity." <laughs> <laughs> it's like somebody sent me an email and was like, "You don't understand ad- objectivity because it's like you have your objectivity and I have mine." And it's like uh, subjective objectivity. You mean uh, no. Right. And, so um you do have to resist that you do have to if you want to stay out of that morass where it just becomes competing narratives you have to be willing to agree that there is some true thing that, about there is some truth that truth might be partially or largely discoverable or at least we can end up agreeing upon some version of events through certain processes that we call you know epistemologies or methodologies or whatever and then we can resolve the conflict in narratives that way. That's all science. That's all liberal processes. That's all liberal law come down to is good means of conflict resolution between disputing narratives, whether it's a disputing narrative of where undersea basalt is formed. That was the foundation of the science of geology. If you don't know that story, it's kind of funny, (laughs) Um, whether it's, you know, what actually happened with the particular shooting, whether it's what how the court of laws will decide upon a thing using standards like preponderance of evidence or beyond all reasonable doubt or the reasonable person standard, how would a reasonable person interpret the situation to determine if somebody was acting outside of that. You know, all these different... It's not like we know nothing about how to know stuff. And the postmodern view kind of is that we actually... Don't know how to know anything because knowledge is all politics, and it's all assertion of narrative and power, and who has the power decides the narrative. And you can see, you know, coming out of like propaganda's propaganda and stuff, where that kind of comes from. But there, if you can, if you if you go, I I hate it with the X Files because it's about like freaking aliens and conspiracies. But (laughs) but if you can actually accept the idea that the truth is out there, then you that's all it takes to resist postmodernism. Yep, And and that the truth might not suit your narrative, uh, and that that's how you do it. These processes, though, and I, I think I'm going to die on this hill of saying it. I, I don't think anybody will kill me for it. I'm just going to keep saying it until I'm dead, is that science, liberal institutions are conflict resolution systems. They're not necessarily perfect. They're pretty good. And their point is to resolve conflict when you have two narratives that don't match. Mm. the I mean I can tell you that science of geology people recognize geology is a science, so you have um what was it Lyell was the guy who, resol- who f- f- founded the science of geology officially by resolving a conflict so the conflict in geology i think this was like early nineteenth century but i don't remember for sure the dates and the conflict was where do so we'll put this in a story so people can remember it. Uh, <laughs> right. Where do where does, does oceanic basalt come from? Basalt is a rock, mm. okay? It's a type of rock. The question was, where does it come from? And there were these. How come there's so much basalt on the seafloor? And there were two competing stories or claims about where it came from, two camps of thought. One where the... <laughs> it's. One were the the Vulcans, or the Vulcanists, and one were the Neptunians. And it sounds like something
0: ridiculous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But if you actually understand the words, you know, they're just referring back to the different Greek gods. Are those, no, those are Roman gods, right? Vulcan and Uh, Neptune are are Roman, Roman.
0: I believe. Yeah, Roman
1: Roman gods. And so um, Vulcan means volcanoes, and Neptune means sea. So the two hypotheses, if you want to simmer it down or boil it down, were it comes from undersea volcanoes, which turned out to be correct, Mm. or it comes from something, you know, the sea itself like precipitates some kind of mineral that becomes the rock on the bottom, Mm -hmm. which these aren't, I mean, calling that the Neptunian view sounds like just funny but it turns out not to be insane. And so they didn't have science in geology at the time. So the way that they settled this crap was by just getting in fights, like arguments. They'd get in these rooms and they'd just yell at each other. They'd call each other names. It was cancel culture. Literally there was a story involved where one of the scientists' wife or something wrote a play or maybe he wrote a play. Somebody wrote a play And so they perform the play, you know, has nothing to do with the science at all. It's just a play being performed in a playhouse in the other camp. All of them showed up and were like booing and like throwing tomatoes to like cancel the play because it was put forth by one of the people on the other side. It's insane. And this was, this was geology. This was a science that hadn't been born yet.
0: Right. right. Over Over rocks. rocks. I mean, over rocks. Yeah. I mean, get, get it folks. Right. People are showing up and trying to ruin other people's work and livelihood and, and, and lives over rocks,
1: over a disagreement, uh, an unresolvable disagreement about where certain types of rock came from. And so this Lyle comes up with this brilliant idea that they're going to settle this. This got hot. I mean, it was like bad. And so he was like, we're going to solve this. So he pulls together like a council of people who are like, we've had enough of the fighting. And what we're going to do is we're going to make a a pact. And the deal was that they were going to get this, go look at rocks. (laughs) (laughs) What? And they were going to figure it out and may the best team win, but we're going to actually go look at rocks and figure it out. And that's how geology became actually became a science. And it's a a really great story for understanding that um, there are bad conflict resolution methods like Cancel culture and showing up and yelling at people and getting in fights, sometimes verbal, sometimes physical, because you can't agree about, you can't resolve the conflict in your two narratives. You have two narratives, you can't resolve the conflict. So fighting is a bad conflict resolution. And then there are better ones, like let's defer to external reality. That's called falsification. Or let's work out the logic of it this is a good example because you had basically science was natural philosophy at the time Mm -hmm. so you had two philosophically sound uh, accounts but you couldn't resolve them philosophy didn't have the tools necessary to resolve them you actually needed falsification you had to go look at reality to determine it Mm -hmm. and so science liberalism are are institutions of law not perfect but they are very good actually already. Conflict resolution methods. Nobody now is going to get at arms about like, you know, say there's some chemical that's been discovered or something. And it's like, what do we do? Nobody starts like setting people on fire or they're burning down their play or whatever. They just go to the lab. We've now got a conflict resolution method. Like, let's actually just go do a test on this thing. Let's figure it out. Except in certain areas of science. Mm-hmm. except in certain areas of science. So you do actually see this now in science about uh, racial disparities
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, having to do with, uh, say, police violence. You see this in science having to do with um, gender, gender identity, uh, transgender issues rather tremendously. decent si- Like you're not even allowed to look into the question of a concept called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Is there a social contagion effect happening in young people, leading them to want to transition more often? Or is there a similar thing happening where, you know, good progressive parents are convincing their kids they should be trans? Uh, are there social elements like this that you can't even study it? You're not, uh, people will will try to destroy your livelihood. They'll try to destroy your career. They will try to get, if the journals publish it, they'll try to get the journal destroyed uh, the editors fired. I mean, it's some serious, serious throwback to a bad conflict resolution method that we've spent the last literally like 400 years figuring out that good conflict resolution method. You see it in law. I saw a paper recently um, talking about the, that it, around the COVID-19 pandemic saying that it's it turns out to be legal to uh, triage within disability law, it is legal to triage around disability. Mm. It's a valid question right now. Mm -hmm. Like, can we do this? Should we do this? Is it allowed? What are the parameters? What are the ethical considerations? It's a valid question when you actually do have to consider medical triage on on a large scale. And it turns out that somebody publishes a paper and like the Yale Law Journal or something like that. Like we're not talking some silly little corner journal and says, you know, it, it does fall within the confines of, of disability law to triage. And the reaction was a petition to get the paper retracted and uh, possibly punish the author and so on. So we're, again, we're, it's, we have good conflict resolution methods, which would be, you know, write your own paper, criticize in detail where it went wrong, where the logic is wrong, where the law says this or that you know, maybe invoke a reasonable person standard, you know, what would a reasonable person do if they had to make this kind of decision? What are the different parameters on an ethical, I mean, there's a lot there in a traditional theory approach. And then there's this, no, let's just yell it out of the, out of the universe, bad conflict resolution. And that's the thing is critical theories don't have a good conflict resolution mechanism. Traditional theories have a good conflict resolution mechanism. Right. So that's at some, like kind of like the, simplest you know what are the nuts and what are the bolts of this thing that's what's going on is conflict resolution methods for battling
0: narratives and how do we resolve one to another it's interesting um it is a, it's a great framing of that i like that framing um i think of a lot of the you know when we talked about that cycle of of becoming part of a group leaving a group other people then you know learning about how bad the group is by people who used to be in it. Um, th- this certainly has value. I'm presenting, I'm, 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 I'm looking at it from a particular angle here yeah. of, of criticizing this cycle that occurs that we humans perpetuate. This is right. how ideas are forwarded, challenged, and changed over time, by the way. This is the cycle. Um, <laughs> it seems kind of obvious once we lay it all out. Um But it's interesting how the people who get on board tend to get on board of the social movements that we're talking about based almost purely on emotion Mm -hmm. or moral reasons, right? Well, it's just wrong. Mm -hmm. It's gross. Because you're, yeah, you're oppressing people, right? And so anything that even moves in the flavor of any kind of criticism or critical analysis of of a a belief or an action or a a policy, should we be moving forward? How do we do? How do we triage, et cetera, for example, becomes a moral question when in fact, that wasn't really what we, how we were looking at this at all. I'm sure sure when you do a legal analysis, uh, um, uh, some kind of a study of how has this played out? How should it play out? What would be the cost benefit analysis? I mean, there's all kinds of resource computations you could do when it comes to medical practice especially Mm -hmm. now i'm sure a lot of those computations are being done but the 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 backlash that you describe i'm positive is not based on what you just you know as as you said should be based on fact this fact this fact this instead it's just no that's wrong because it's immoral
1: because it can perpetuate oppression
0: Right, because it could perpetuate oppression and, that's, and that is key could exactly and
1: if, it's not even just could it's could be construed to possibly perpetuate
0: well that's oppression is you, is, the, is the is the analysis of this really suffers because those computations aren't done for example, you can easily lay out um why Germany has anti swastika laws it's there is zero question about that right. nobody has a moral problem with that at least nobody who's really got their you know their their wits around why they would have such a law we know how easy it is to rile up a nation of people and not just mm-hmm. germans i'm I'm not picking on germans i'm just using them as an example here sure. of like why would you not want to allow swastikas in public again kind of sensible you go okay I get it I get where these guys are at the trauma has not even come close to being played out in that country yet and it's a hundred years later doesn't matter it's probably going to take another five generations before somebody's gonna seriously think about showing a swastika in a public forum of some kind in Germany it's going to take a lot more time there's very good historical accurate reasons for that right so so the arguments there are not just moral arguments of it doesn't make me feel good or it you know makes me feel bad but this i i I only throw that out there to sort of give some kind of analogous sort of thing that you could look at and go well that's a moral thing well not totally this kind of is this is just "Ah, it's just wrong you know and again right to do with these stories we tell each ourselves you know
1: right that strikes again to the heart of the difference between the traditional methods and the the Critical methods, right? Because, um, and I just figured this out recently, and it's like in a watershed moment. So I haven't really talked much about it publicly yet. Um, traditional theories use tools like defeasibility. That's a, that's a technical um, philosophy term. Like, is something, it, you know, some idea contradictory? Is there some other idea that's that's likely to be true that's contradictory to the thing that would defeat it? Um, is it logically Invalid, is it, is, are the premises sound or not sound? So there are different ways that you can defeat a, a philosophical argument. Science uses falsification. They bounce it off of experiment, and if it's falsified, well, even if it's logically valid, fine, but it doesn't match reality, so it's been falsified. Uh, Karl Popper outlined that idea. And then critical theory uses problematization. It uh, uses I- the... It says, is it problematic? There and what go. does problematic mean? Is problematic means, can it possibly perpetuate oppression mm-hmm. and or be understood to? A good example, by the way, of the can it possibly be construed to is I saw recently there's a thing that floated around on Twitter the other day where somebody tweeted that they just, somebody told them the real reason why they're called master bedrooms and they'll never be okay again and, i mean you immediately pick up that it's where the, the master slept versus the slave quarters right so it can be so now master bedroom is a problem and it's got to be called the main bedroom or something like that because it perpetuates thoughts of slavery and so on okay now hold on question is is that you know i i saw this and i was like I'm fine sorry, that's really that's that's just classic so then somebody comes to me, I tweeted about it, and somebody comes to me and sends me an article that's where it was, it was written before any of this hot take bull crap. What's the actual history of calling it the master bathroom, or bedroom, uh, bathroom would apply too. And it turns out that the term never appears anywhere before like a Sears catalog in 1928, <laughs> which means it probably doesn't have anything to do with slavery whatsoever. It has this whole other history. Um, whether, and, and so that doesn't matter. The idea is that calling it the master bedroom could make people who've been now trained to think about slavery's relevance to everything, it could make those people think about um, slave quarters versus the master's quarters. And so now we, it doesn't matter. Problem, the, the term is problematic, even if the history doesn't match up with, right. with the claim being made. So they're actually allowed to be wrong about the term because that doesn't matter because the problematic still exists even regardless of the history, because people will think that it's like, uh, my colleague, you know, Helen Pluckrose, um, when she wrote about, uh, when she was doing her master's degree, she had this case where she wrote a, wrote a paper and claimed in it that one of the best ways to overcome racism has something to do with, uh, developing a sense of shared goals. And, racially diverse groups because you fixate on the goal rather than on social factors and everybody kind of comes together to solve the problem and you form bonds and so on. And she was told that the science might be correct, but she shouldn't rely upon that. Because think of how problematic it would be if an African American were to read it. And and it was keep in mind she's British. So it was what if a black American reads this and finds it uncomfortable to say that there's a way to overcome racism. So this is problematic. So we can't include it. So it doesn't even matter whether the thing is true or not. All that matters, it's, it's genuinely, and I know this is some high, high order philosophy shit, but it's genuinely a completely different epistemology that they're using. They vet which ideas are valid and not valid. True and false don't matter. Mm-hmm. So you can't even say which ideas are true and which ideas are false. They vet which ideas are are valid and invalid based upon whether they're potentially problematic in any way whatsoever. And if they're potentially problematic, then they are not acceptable. It doesn't matter if they're true or false. And that's the heart of critical theory. And that's – I mean that's, that is like – literally the beating heart of the whole methodology. And you can see why when it gets decoupled from having to care whether about things are true or not, it starts to be a big problem real fast. Um, And that's actually what's happening. Yeah, I know we're supposed to be, we're not really doing a great job (laughs) of talking about woke, but within the so-called woke movement or the critical social justice movement, as I have have taken from their literature and named it, uh, that is exactly how they think about everything. It, true and false don't matter. It's only whether or not it could potentially be problematic. And if it is, we have to have wide or large scale change. There has to be a lot, a large scale societal change, our knowledge systems, our institutions, our ways of speaking, so we need politically correct language, uh, our teaching, our everything, our cultural <laughs> our cultural mores, our values, our our, our morals, all have to change around the thing that could be problematic. And as you said, they've come at it with like, it's gross. Right. It's, it's bad. It's on the wrong side of history.
0: Right. And tailoring an entire society around a small group of people's morality has pretty much been the recipe for disaster in every history book we've ever written. Oh, yeah. And if, especially when you...
1: Include, we're not even going to bother trying to figure out if things are true or false in society anymore. We're just going to cater to, and we're going to try to very carefully circle around, back to, and around, and not too close to the fact that this might a lot of might really have a lot to do with like trauma informed thinking. So, trying to cater society around people who are psychologically broken. That's right. I'll get in a lot of trouble for calling them psychologically broken. And I don't think they all are, of course but there are a lot of people at the core of this that have some serious psychological issues going on and their philosophy seems to be an attempt to work that out. Uh, Mm -hmm. As Nietzsche said, most philosophy turns out to be anyway. (laughs) Um, Exactly. I I mean, you can just think of lots of examples where you have uh, within like feminism, You have people who are worried about the uh, trauma associated with people who have been raped. That's a real trauma. That's a a freaking thing. And so now we have to completely reorder society, getting rid of due process, getting rid of many of the, the fundamental principles of law that make a liberal society work in order that no person who's had that trauma or who could imagine having that trauma is made to feel uncomfortable in that way ever. And then you get like trigger warnings and all of this, the rest of this stuff. And then you can look at it within like the context of race where we can't use words like master bathroom Mm -hmm. or master bedroom anymore because it might make somebody think of slavery. And then, I mean, you can even look though at the the theorists. Like Robin DiAngelo is very famous. She wrote White Fragility, New York Times bestseller for six months world speaking to her for two years she's written a number of of education books she's a, a critical whiteness educator is her kind of uh thing critical whiteness studies is a is a subject and robin d'angelo if you read in white fragility it's i think it's a fabulous read it's like I, it's like when i was, used to be an atheist and tell well, i am still an atheist but i used to tell people if you should, oh you just go read the bible <laughs> you want to like you want to know why i'm an atheist go go actually read your bible yeah. see what's in there for, for the first time yeah um beyond the 200 things your pastor says um in mm-hmm. that favorite quote of benjamin franklin or attributed to benjamin franklin probably wrongly that god helps those who help themselves it turns out that one's not in there um mm-hmm. <laughs> <then> <laughs> you'll be surprised what you find so, but it's like if i just tell people you know what should they say they say what should i read to kind of get a grip on what this is go read white fragility actually go read it (laughs) take a look and so there's a scene in there this is one of my favorite questions to ask people is you know they talk about this this stuff and I'm like well you know you should read white fragility and they're like oh I read white fragility and I don't say what did you think of the book I say well what do you think of the particular scene that she relays where she's walking at the she shows up at the park to a potluck for work And there are two parties happening at the park, one of which is her work party, and one of which turns out to be maybe a family reunion, whatever it is. It's all black people. And she relays in the book that she absolutely freaks out that she might have to be in a group of all black people. And it's like, the woman's racist. It's like, it's just freaking out. She knows she's not supposed to be, she knows it's bad. And there's a psychological disorder called scrupulosity, it's very common in some strict religious upbringings catholics and mormons have it particularly it's scrupulosity about racism her whole anti-racist project her whole white fragility thing the whole freaking thing this white complicity all of these concepts they are scrupulosity about racism it is people who see race like maybe people do and then they think i'm not supposed to see race I'm a bad person. I bet I'm racist. I must have implicit biases. Oh, no. And then they freak out and go write a blog, or in this case, a book, talking about how bad racism is and how white people are all complicit in it. It's kind of like this joke I saw when I was one of the funniest damn things I think I ever saw, like nerd joke. And somehow it was like a comic and it showed Sigmund Freud. And it was like showing him sitting there thinking. And it was like, no, it's not just that I want to have sex with my mother. Everybody wants to have sex with their mothers. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. That's the fatal flaw in the logic right there. And it is it is perhaps the most devastating case of projection. Projection. In a modern society that we have seen. Right. You know, because you have somebody who's a racist and they go, well, shit, I'm a nice, good, whole, well-reared, well-educated white person. So if I feel this way, deep, dark inside myself, then <laughs> everybody must think this too, because how could I be so and worse and still be so bad? Exactly. And there's more- There's actually a
1: term for that in their literature. Really? It's called good white. Ah. they call it, So one of the fake papers that we wrote um, was a rewrite not of a particular chapter of Mein Kampf, but what actually had happened was, to tell a sh- story as briefly as possible, Peter took a digital copy of Mein Kampf, searched for the word Jew, and then just selected in order, going through the text, a number of paragraphs so he got to the right number of words that are all like railing on Jews. Turns out the book's full of that. And like um, yeah, and so the first, so that wasn't like, When we say that, you know, that was from Mein Kampf, it wasn't like specifically, you know, chapter four or something like that. It was just a smattering throughout in order uh, where he's attacking Jews consistently and we replaced Jew with white person. And so then we ended up writing that paper up and doing the whole thing. And we wrote it as a first person narrative. They call that an autoethnography. And we wrote it as a first person narrative of a white lesbian who discovers her whiteness and becomes very upset with herself over it, sort of like Robin D'Angelo. And um, one of the reasons, now the paper was bad, so I'm not going to say it was the reason it got rejected, but one of the reasons the peer reviewers cited for rejecting it was that it positions the author as a good white. It positions the author as somebody who gets it about racism, which makes her a good white, and therefore that's not been sufficiently problematized. And so that's where I first realized good white is a term. And I was like, holy crap. And so if you really, again, I recommend people read White Fragility, but if you really want to have a fun read, there's a book that came out um, 2018 or 19, I can't remember, by Shannon Sullivan. Shannon Sullivan is not a small name. She's not like a household-ish name like Robin DiAngelo, but she's not a small name in this, pro- this, this woke project. Um, and she wrote a book called Good White People. Turns out their literature actually fixates on good white people a lot. You can see these kind of scrupulous, uh, we started calling them gender and race nuns early on. They have this very nunnish quality to them. Alison Bailey's one, Robin D'Angelo's one, um, Barbara Applebaum is one. And if you watch them talk, their manner, the way they do, it's very nunnish. And it's scrupulosity is what's happening, is why. And so anyway, good white people is the most like, vigorous angry screed about white people who try to be progressive and believe that they're not racist and therefore are perpetuating racism without even being willing to realize it and they only try to be anti-racist to pretend that they're not racist and it's like holy shit they're mad at these people um they it is self-loathing projected outward it's so obvious when you read, it's clear and white fragility. But when you read it in, um, when you read it in, in good white people, which n- bigger author, but sort of a fringe book, it's not one of their central canon books. It's just like, holy moly, mm-hmm. this is what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a big piece of what's going on here. So it's a projection of people who don't know how to deal with the fact that they know being racist is bad, and They detect elements of it in themselves. The implicit bias test made that run wild. People all of a sudden, all over the place, discovered, you know, good white people discovered that they have these racial biases and they start flipping out. And then the critical theorists were like, see, you have hidden, you know, systems of power. That's how they work. They're hidden inside you with your biases and your assumptions. And it's just like, holy crap, the whole thing caught fire. Um, But definitely you can see it's just like, uh, as Mike Nana, the guy that's doing the film about our project, puts it, is like we're being forced to live in other people's pathologies.
0: Exactly. Uh, it's I, I, I. What comes to mind right now is the Scarlet Letter. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean. This is I all, mean, that's what that
1: was too, right? That's what the time. That's right. The. I mean, that technically wasn't witches. That was um, adultery. No, that was but, adultery.
0: But it, right. But it was guilt. exactly there's this minister right railing and railing and railing for years about sin and sin and he's the most guilty one
1: exactly yeah
0: and he's reminded of it every day of the week by this woman walking around with a scarlet letter on her on her chest because she has to right so that which just perpetuates his own guilt and self-loathing and he's beaten on himself in private etc cetera. Yep. It just makes me think of that as one. Of it, many, I mean, it, it is. is.
1: These same kinds of motives showed up in in these, you know, kind of faith traditions gone awry. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're seeing it again here. And it's this outward projection of not knowing how to deal with the fact that they feel complicit in evil. I mean, that's the whole point of Barbara Applebaum's body of literature. Is, it's called white complicity. She wrote in 2010 this book called Being, what is it, Being Good, Being White. And it's about white complicity, <laughs> wow. and it's it's like deep, interesting, well written philosophy. I mean, it's proper philosophy, at two hundred some odd pages long, basically trying to make the case that every white person is complicit in racism, whether they want to be or not. And so it's like stretching and playing like Plato stretching or silly putty with the with the definition of complicity to stretch it so that every white person is always complicit in white supremacy and systems of racism
0: interesting interesting outgrowth of this whole thing i was thinking on a you know there's different levels that we can look at this at where we're, we've gone very personal on mm-hmm. this on the psychological levels of this with the with the mainline proponents or activists that we see in the in the critical race theory stuff um I imagine we could talk and name drop the same things um, or similar. I don't want to say it's all the same as the same as the same. Everybody's got differences and and similarities. Um, but I'm sure in other critical theory, you know, groups we could find similarities there. I look, I I step back a second and sociologically or sort of historically look at this and I go, okay, we call it postmodernism. It seems to be an effort to push back to um stone age thinking it is yeah absolutely cause magical thinking there's no real truth it's just how you feel i mean how do you think people governed back in the day like way back before enlightenment happened right divinity of kings it was family lines it was it was god who told you to do it i mean you know the right. Pope and all that i mean talk about arbitrary decision making Right, you know, there's there. I mean, talk about like moral fluidity and relativism, and you never know what you were going to get. You know, and country by country, it was different. You know, you run run around in Gaul, it's quite different from Rome, and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's all relative. It's all based on you know whatever the local culture and religion and and ideas were versus any real objective standard of truth. And that's what the Enlightenment gave us was the ability finally to. Here's a method that we can establish falsification. And we find right. this tends to reflect what we refer to and call and think of as objective reality, best as we can perceive it. Right. You know. And the,
1: the that also the belief in human rationality, because that's right. where you start getting a lot of it in law. Yeah. So that's why objectivity is something we can approximate through the scientific method. Okay. That's why we can have something like a reasonable person standard in law, is because we can view people as Uh, rational actors, and so on. Now, of course, that does need to be um, nuanced in light of the psychology that we've discovered. Humans are not by default rational actors, and somehow we've got to figure (laughs) out how to account for that. But humans can be rational actors. And so postmodernism rejects the idea of the can be. I actually think that the the outline of what's going on was in in Kahneman's very famous book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow right or thinking fast and slow, maybe just thinking yeah, fast, maybe and slow. fast
0: and slow I think yeah system yeah system two uh, thinking
1: yeah, exactly, so you have intuitive thinking, which is the fast thinking, and that's what we do for navigating most of reality and most of our experience and social reality in particular because the calculations are too are too difficult probably part of why autism is what it is, is because it's harder they have to do they're less intuitive in that regard and have to do more of the calculation and it's freaking hard to calculate correctly so they pick the wrong emotion to express in certain times or whatever um then you have uh thinking slow and that's being rational mm-hmm. and humans to at least whatever the limits of their cognitive capacity happen to be are actually capable of sitting down stopping thinking through a thing and even more importantly they're able to do this socially as well they're able to say let's think through this together let's have a dialogue let's do the dialectical process let's figure out the flaws in our thinking the feasibility or eventually let's go look at the rocks let's do the experiment so let's add in falsification so we ended up developing these concepts that really, again, allowed us to to resolve conflict. And then postmodernism was like, nope, all an illusion. Let's go back, as you said, essentially to, I mean, magical thinking, lived experience, and one's interpretation of that. The idea being to find liberation. I mean, Michel Foucault's whole thing was like, let's explore potentialities of being makes sense. He was, you know, gay and not allowed to be gay his dad told him he had to be a doctor he didn't want to be a doctor so he had all this constraint on his uh you know his being so he wants to explore broader potentialities of being and so he's trying to look you know the whole goal of that project becomes to think about things in ways that break down the assumptions that hold us back to to achieve liberation by thinking more expansively and so that's sort of like the lived experience thing it's like well you know society tells you this is what your experience means but you can explore bigger potentialities for yourself you know and you get this kind of almost narcissistic solipsistic thinking it's all self it's all navel gazing in some sense Mm -hmm. and that that all kind of comes out of it and then you have Jean-François Lyotard who was um we need to reject the meta-narrative these kind of well, you know it depends on how you want to characterize them. I think that social mythology is a good way to to do it, but he included science as a meta narrative, which means it has to be like entire like ways of thinking that lots of people can agree upon <laughs> that is what he had to have meant by meta narrative and so he was like we 're going to be skeptical of those in the extreme and he then in the book the postmodern Condition talks about how it's important to favor local or mini narratives which again that's your kind of like tribal thing so we want to kind of pull back to something we were mentioning earlier you get on the internet and now it's almost like countries don't have to be geographically defined I think about this all the time like the internet defines like a whole different version of the world and so you kind of get like you know Foucault talked about regimes of truth it's almost like those become countries, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, on the internet. and They're warring from one another. The weird part is, though, that at the end of the day, they do have to interface back with reality somehow, right? Because people still live in reality, regardless of how much time they
0: spend online. Um, That's right. And it is a, a, a faux virtual reality. It is, it is it, it's an interesting thing, because it's real. It's certainly real, and ideas are certainly real, but it's just but it's also illusory. It's a very strange thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, okay, now we've set some baselines and some, and some ideas here that I want to, that, that actually do have everything to do with um, wokeness, being woke. Correct. And I think now I'd like to just sort of take a little bit of time as we, as maybe as we wrap this up here to, um, to look at how woke evolved and died as a term. And it's actually kind of demonstrative when you look at the whole history of it, of how this movement is undoing, is not, is, is kind of undoing what it's trying to do. It's, it's, it's kind of making it worse rather yes. than making it better. And, and actually, this word kind of demonstrates that. And it was only after we talked about all this that I saw that so clearly. I didn't come into this thinking that. But... If we go back to the history of where it comes from, it goes back to, at least as far as people have been able to trace it as it shows up in Wikipedia and various media articles. Um, Oxford dictionaries record it as 1962 article from the New York Times, "If you're woke, you dig it," by William Melvin Kelly. And in a 1971 play, uh, Garvey lives by a guy named Barry Beckham. And um, it's quote, "I've been sleeping all my life. And now that Mr. Garvey done woke me up, I'm gonna stay woke and I'm gonna help him wake up other Black folk. And I'm just reading what it says here. I'm not trying to do some stupid accent. Um, wake up, Ethiopia, wake up, Africa. This was a Black thing and it was a Black, you know, a word. And this is how it was used, this is how it was defined. Um, let me tell you, buddy, waking up is a damn sight harder than going to sleep, but we'll stay woke up longer. Another quote Mm -hmm. from um, uh, African-American United Mine Workers in 1940. That's where that came from. So we get this like, hey, you know, this is clearly a precursor to the entire civil rights movement or part of that whole activity, which blew up in the 50s and 60s. And good for them, good on them. This was a wonderful thing to have happen. Uh, civil rights are very, very necessary for you know a progressive liberty uh, right society. So that happens, then <laughs> these folks come along, right? The critical uh, race theory folks, right? And so you get then um, come up into the two thousands uh, to stay woke. Uh, yeah,
1: right. America, Badu.
0: Yeah, being aware—that's right. Being aware. um, Yeah, he he used it. Uh, Rapper Badu began to use "woke" and "stay woke" in connection to social and racial justice issues. That was 2012, and the hashtag "stay woke" emerged as widely as a widely used thing. Um, There was with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Yeah, and Black Lives Matter exactly. There was "stay woke" to the fact
1: that police aren't treating you, so you got to be aware, et cetera. So it became big in Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is the thing that mainstreamed critical race theory yep. because it started to say that, look, there must be this systemic and institutional racism throughout our whole society.
0: Um, That's right. And if you didn't want to be a racist and you, and you had this, right? White, I'm pointing to my white skin here. Um, if you didn't want to be perceived as a bad person, then you wanted to go along with that. Because who doesn't want equal rights? Who doesn't want civil rights for everybody? Who doesn't want an equal playing field and uh, you know e- uh, equality of opportunity and that sort of thing? But those were only—that was only the veneer to get you on board. Right. That's yeah. The problem with that is it was a false front. It was a false flag operation, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, because then it, right. it morphed, as words will do. It morphed, and by the late 2010s, Woke had taken to indicate, quote, healthy paranoia, especially about issues of racial and political justice. Healthy paranoia, that's an interesting term, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Healthy paranoia, and has been adopted as a more generic slang term and has been the subject of memes, and this is only in the last 10 years. So, um, you know, and then the, and then Here's how the movement kind of eats itself a little bit. In the New York Times Magazine, Amanda Hess raised concerns that the word had been culturally appropriated. Because it's problematic. It's yeah. all you do is find problematics. That's right. So and everything's problematic. When white people aspire to get points for consciousness, they walk right into the crosshairs between allyship and appropriation.
1: Yep. They did that with uh, people of color also. People of color is now mm-hmm. being alleged to be used by white people so they can ignore the differences between different races right that are not white because they see not white as all one thing uh and you know worse very derrida uh oh my god
0: well let me let me let me go to this and then i will ask you what you think about all this because I, i find it fascinating personally because then we come full circle uh former president barack obama a black man, by the way, <laughs> need, we, need we remind everybody of that, points out that the left's woke culture is um, eyes wide open to everyone else's political sins. This is from a uh, Washington Examiner article. Essentially, woke on the left has become conformity to a political dogma, and may God help you if you're still asleep. And then here's how Obama put it. Quote, this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or use the word ver- wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because man, did I, did you see how woke I was? I called you out. That's a direct quote from Barack Obama. <laughs> So we've come within a within a century of this word coming up, being used in a in a positive, useful way for civil rights, to uh, the very people that it was meant to help. Saying, you know, the 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 president saying, this has gotten so out of hand, so ridiculous that could we please just stop? Mm -hmm. And I find that evolution fascinating. Only because of all the things we've been talking about this whole podcast.
1: Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, I don't know if you know what happened to uh, to Obama with among the woke for doing that, which is they're yep. like, "Oh, he's conservative. <laughs> yep, <laughs> he's a conservative. Of course, he was. <laughs> he's alt right, probably." Isn't that uh, hilarious? How fast uh, they turn. They have no loyalty except to the ideology, right? Which. Is why they're famous for eating you know eating themselves or eating. I like to say intersectionality chews on its own leg. but <laughs> there you go. this is a funny image in my, my mind. But yeah, I mean the, the key thing here is that there was critical race theory. It's very interesting that in the late 1990s, critical race theory actually arose in law uh, in critical legal studies by two lawyers, Derek Bell who's at Harvard Law, and his PhD student, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's much more famous for having invented intersectionality as a concept. Oh, right. So she and her mentor, Derek Bell, are considered the progenitors of critical race theory. Uh, Obama, it turns out, was quite well learned and highly supportive of critical race theory. In the late 90s, there were tons of um, strong criticisms uh, in law journals of critical race theory. And all of them recognize the same thing. It's very odd that there's so much activity with this in the academy, but it's never left legal theory. It's never gone anywhere. Nobody in the public pays attention to it. It's not affecting law very much at all. It's why is this happening? And here are all of the flaws in the way that it thinks. And and then roughly around 2000, all such criticisms vanish. Nobody's publishing that stuff anymore. It's really kind of bizarre. There was this huge spate of criticisms. Um, So it turns out that we have to kind of take two seconds to think about why Derek Bell and what's the... We've been talking about critical theory for a while now, so we have some idea of what the problem with critical race theory is, if it's critical theory. But one of the key things about critical race theory, I guess two of the key things. One of them is that it views racism in american society and it does usually specifically say that as permanent and ordinary which means that mm-hmm. it it's something that's just beneath the surface it's always there you just scratch the surface and racism will bubble out it operates systemically and so on uh it's anti-liberal in that fact it's believes that liberalism upholds that systemic racism. But a second thing is, and this is a concept of Derrick Bell's, it's very much at the heart of it. And it explains a little bit of what we were just saying is, is interest convergence. So one of, one of Derrick Bell's ideas was interest convergence thesis. And the interest convergence thesis says that white folks only go along with things that help black folks when it's in the white people's interest too. So the interests have to converge. They never, in, in general, it's nobody in a position of dominance will give the oppressed their rights. They only do it when it's to their own advantage. So there's your healthy paranoia, mm-hmm. right? So the <laughs> okay. question that Robin DiAngelo writes about all the time is it's when you look at a public policy, when you look at science, when you look at a way of knowing, whatever it happens to be, you always have to ask. And I think she says this specifically in one of her books about objectivity is, you know, whose interests does objectivity serve? And the implication, of course, is dominant groups, white, Western, masculinist, straight, able-bodied, fit and thin, so on and so forth, healthy. You can start listing all the things that Judith Butler described when you have to do all these lists as that, exasperated, et cetera when you try to list all the identity categories that you have to pay attention to and intersectionality every time. And so you have this concept of of interest convergence that then going forward as as critical race theory starts to mainstream, starts to view any progress that's happened since literally since even, even the civil rights movements, even the civil rights movement, Derek Bell construed as only having been done because it was in white people's interests more than in black people's interests. So it's just another way to oppress black people and went further and said that it just opened up a whole can of new worms for black people to have to deal with because now they have to participate equally in society and the society doesn't value them equally or, you know, whatever it is, they have to go to integrated schools that are no longer segregated. And that means, you know, they get better schools, but they have to experience racism at school now. And it's like this whole like crazy mentality uh, that, yeah, progress isn't progress. And so you wonder why it undoes everything that it tries to accomplish is because it has this mentality that progress isn't progress literally at its
0: core. Wow, man. I thought I had gone as down deep as it would get. And I'd not heard that.
1: No, it's, it's really bad. And so it's very interesting, you know, that Obama saying this woke thing is like, get over that. Cause for a while he actually, I mean, I don't know if he was a student of Bell's I don't think he was, but he definitely um, taught Derek Bell's material and he definitely, you know, had wow. he, he's famously quoted the right parades, this quote around like crazy now that he had quoted saying that, you know, one of the most important thinkers, is Derek Bell, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And it's like, Oh, um, So, you know, well, it looks like he
0: changed his mind at some point along the way, which he has the perfect right to do.
1: Right. Because what he said is absolutely true. Life is messy. The world is messy. There's ambiguity. Things are difficult, you know, and then there's this whole like, I owned you online, you know, so-and-so destroys. We we won't name so-and-so's. So-and-so destroys with, with facts and logic or whatever online. You know, so you use the wrong word, you called it a master bedroom, you racist. And so it's just, you know, this whole mentality of just, just critical theory, rather than a purpose traditional theory has now come into, into the fore in terms of racial analysis. And it's been so successful at bullying other research off the table, that it's now considered to be the only val- valid research on race. Uh, These are are race scholars. And in some places they get called race sociologists. So they get promoted to a level of science when they say that science is bad and wrong, um, that they don't deserve. So, you know, there's a lot going on there. It also, by the way, when we say that it undoes what it does, uh, it's not just a healthy paranoia. It literally gets the entire program backwards. Mm -hmm. So we talked about Helen saying that shared goals in a diverse group, meaning just identity diverse group, not what they mean by diversity, which is its own can of worms, (laughs) actually can overcome racism. Well, according to Critical Race Theory, nothing can overcome racism, so that can't be true. So now we have to problematize that. But the... um, core thing that they decided to do, and this was very much Kimberly Crenshaw uh, in the literature, but she built off of bell hooks and the other black feminists. And the black feminists were, guess what they were, if I said critical theorists in the so-called new left that followed straight out of Herbert Marcuse, who was one of the big time guys, came to Columbia University from the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, So you can draw the line, the drawing that you're drawing the line is a straight, it's a very straight line. There aren't very many curves here. The black feminism picked up critical theory. Black feminism started talking about this need to identify as black rather than a person who happens to be black. We're going to get rid of colorblindness. We're going to make race salient. We're going to make race the most salient and most important thing. And it turns out that basically everything we actually know about race And racism is that that increases it and doing the opposite (laughs) decreases it. Yeah. So, but they say that that's absolutely critical. So, at the very heart, again, of critical race theory is what they call an identity first model of uh, doing identity politics, frankly, which is that you put your identity first. So, I am a black person. Kimberly Crenshaw writes in Mapping the Margins, her most famous paper from 1991. She writes, um, I am a black person means more than I am a person that happens to be black. And it is an important kind of more that's crucial for identity politics. So now you see this everywhere. I'm not a person who happens to have lost my hearing. I am a deaf person, capital D, deaf person. I am a capital B, black person. Why do they capitalize the black, by the way? The B in black. That's why, because it's, they have to, and I will actually say, reify the socially constructed racial category. And now here's where it goes, where it gets funny. Their point is to destroy the, socially, the meaning in the socially constructed racial category, if you ask them, but they are trying to do it by forwarding that meaning explicitly every single time. It's like, how are you going to get rid of the thing by bringing it up over and over and over again? Um, so when you talk, talk about getting things exactly backwards and how they actually harm the efforts that they're trying to achieve, that uh, efforts that most of us, whatever our race, most of us in society would actually agree with. You ask even all but a small percentage of of the craziest conservative type people, you know, the ones who aren't even really, con- the, the conservatives won't even claim them. They're just racists. You ask everybody else, would you like to get society to be less racist? Yes. Would you like to be less racist? Yes. You know, do you think racism should be, it should have an impact on people's opportunities? No. It, Everybody, basically, outside of a very tiny fringe minority, agrees with this. And yet, the one way that that we know of, or the set of ways that we know of that actually can achieve that are problematized because they possibly, if you want to know why I say colorblindness is problematized, is because it's possible that colorblindness leads to racism blindness, which is a denial that racism is still a thing. I'm not racist. There is no racism. We're all colorblind now. That's called racism blindness. So because colorblindness can lead to, not always does, can lead to racism blindness, colorblindness is problematic. And colorblindness has to go. Therefore, we have to assert, I'm on team black. I'm on team white. I'm on team, and then you're like, holy shit, don't do that. Holy, not everybody And how crazy is it is that these identities aren't even who you are. They're political. So Kanye West puts on a MAGA hat, and Kanye West is declared in an article published somewhere to be, quote, no longer black. Right. Because he has white politics now.
0: Right. So it becomes an ideological identity.
1: It's (laughs) a a nightmare.
0: I tell you, we sit here and we wonder why we're so divided as a nation. And 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 I'm pretty sure I'm on I'm on fairly stable ground when I say that this is predominantly an American phenomenon. I I'm I'm positive it's spread around to other countries. Critical race theory is predominantly American, but it, the critical it, method
1: is strong in both Europe and America
0: or also Canada and Australia. Throughout the the English speaking world, frankly. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, of course, and it's derived from, you know, the postmodernism, which is not American. and modern. Right.
1: Postcolonial aspects are much stronger once you get out of the U.S. context. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, uh, they're obsessed with the the everything's decolonized this and decolonized that. Um, oh, so sure it's sure. colonial guilt versus race guilt. <laughs> Cause,
0: yeah, because they were all the ones doing the colonizing. <laughs> Correct. We were the ones who brought all the slaves over and, you know, built the South on it. So makes sense. I totally get that. Um, but if you're looking for, I mean, with what we've broken down here, with what we have deconstructed, it seems that <laughs> it's pretty clear where a lot of this this national divisiveness is coming from, and um, or it's certainly a major component of it. And it is ideological in nature, as we have shown. So mm-hmm. it's not you can, you know you can't divorce this stuff from politics. And this is one of the one of the bugbears of of me on my channel is I've gone from cults to extremist thinking to politics, where it is most obvious, it is the easiest way to talk about extremism is to point it out in politics. And yet it's the hardest place to point it out and talk about it because people are so divided. They're not willing to objectively hear what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's literally like I start going into what I was just doing I start getting stressed out and thinking it's like, the house is on fire. It's not like the dog like this is fine. It's like, if in this case it would be the left but it depends um because if there the same things are happening on the right as well but mm-hmm. in a different way so on the left you know you're like the ha- this house is on fire you know this, you were throwing gasoline on, in fact and they're like no no it's not fire the, there's no flames there's no flames mm-hmm. on the right. What I always hear, I talk about how Trump is deconstructing the office of the president, and that it's basically critical government studies. And then the comeback I get from them is, "Well, it needed to be de- it needed to be deconstructed." And it's like, "Whoa, mm-hmm. we're we're in a bad place." Mm-hmm. It's like you know, on the one side you got people, on, or on some sides you got people embracing the flame, and then on the other sides you got people saying, "Well, oh, no, 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 the flames aren't really flames." You know, this is like. Pillars are starting to fall down. Mm -hmm. If you don't think pillars are starting to fall down, let me just ask you a very uncomfortable question. Unless you are pretty far into one particular camp, this is going to unsettle you. And if this doesn't unsettle you, you might want to reflect on if you're pretty far into some particular camp. Do you trust the ACLU anymore? Hmm. Do you trust the American Civil Liberties Union anymore? It's an interesting question. Yeah, the the pillar is on fire. <laughs> the pillar is crumbling. Um, if you don't trust, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't trust ACLU
0: anymore. Mm. I've completely lost trust in the ACLU. Okay. Uh, I've lost trust in both of the political parties. Well, so, I can definitely join you on that one. I've always had mixed feelings about the ACLU. That's honestly where I've been. I've, I've, I, I lack a I, I, a knowledge base to make an informed decision, and so I know. You should go I read the Twitter feed for a minute. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I have definitely been disturbed by some of the things I have seen the ACLU say. On the other hand, I have been a proponent of the ACLU with certain, you know, uh, things that they have done that I have been very much behind. So no, I hear you. I've had I'm similar back. similar
1: institutions as well, and it's just in the past, you know, few months. I'm like, oh my god, the ACLU is basically. Mm -hmm. a woke organ at this point it's like oh no
0: and i could see that corruption occurring and i that's where the mixed bag came from so i am definitely tracking with what you're saying and not having kept up or following what they were really up to these days i couldn't speak intelligently about it but
1: so let me jump on a point real quick there then so when woke (laughs) critical methods i should say when critical theory comes into something because it doesn't matter if it's on the woke side or if it's on you know, the critical government side or any sure. critical critical religion, it doesn't matter where it is. Once critical methods come into something that's a, that is a one-way street, the yeah. force that it takes to push it back out, you cannot allow it to work itself out. It will not work itself out. It will have to be somehow removed. I'm not saying we need to defund anything. I don't know what the method is. I know that in a lot of cases, it means... People have to be willing to take up committee roles. People have to be willing to get on uh, boards and things they don't really want to do. They don't have time to do because it's a one-way street. Two reasons. One is that it's actually being driven by activists. Critical theorists are, by definition, activism mm. or activists. That's right. Being able to be put into activism is point number two out of three. Like when Horkheimer defines a critical theory, he says it has to satisfy all three of these conditions. Number two is being able to be put into use by activists Mm, (laughs) so it is explicitly activist on
0: purpose right it's more important it's almost a it's almost you can almost branch it as like activist philosophy it is it's activist philosophy it's led to activist
1: journalism it's led to activist politicians it's led to um activist scholars and this is not not a healthy place to be the other reason is because Once something starts taking on critical methods, problematizing is so powerful psychologically that you – like so for the ACLU, for example, a little bit of critical stuff gets in. They can't come back to normal stuff because now that's upholding the status quo, and they're going to get burned from within. So the the problematizing is going to get turned back on them. So it's only a slow march toward more and more and more woke until the thing – or more and more critical, I really should say, until the thing collapses. And because it just becomes critical and therefore more or less useless. Um, Because it doesn't care about truth and falsity anymore. It just cares about.
0: So it's, it's 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 built on in-group, out-group. When you talk about paranoia, it's built on paranoia of, of being in the out-group. Right. You know, oh my God. Being identified with the, with the out-group. Yeah. I might be the bad guy here. (gasps) Don't want
1: to. This is where your authoritarian, you know, your background in authoritarian thought is going to, like, flare up because they, okay. they repeatedly say there is no neutral. Ibram Kendi writes the book about um, anti-racism and wants to make a constitutional amendment that establishes an anti-racism office. Uh, and he calls, he, yeah, and so he says there's no such thing as neutral. You're either, you're either racist or you're anti-racist. There's no not racist. They explicitly, it's not like I'm riffing. He explicitly says, not racist doesn't exist. They're either anti-racist or you're racist. Robin DiAngelo repeatedly writes that there is no neutral. You have to pick a side. To not pick a side is by default to pick the side of the oppressor and because it's all oppressor versus oppressed dynamics and their, their worldview. So you have to pick a side. You have to get in one of the groups. You can't just say ignore this because then you get categorized in one of the groups and you can see how this, I mean, we didn't talk about it here, but you can see where we're going into robber's cave here real quick. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, that is where it goes. And, and it's, and it is agitation. Let's keep, let's, let's keep something front and center here, right? This is agitation. Um, by activist politics or activist uh, philosophers. Yes. You know, actually we talked about this before the podcast and haven't we arrived at a perfect place to maybe talk about that again, actually. We can. Yeah. Let's do it. So uh, and then we'll wrap up on this because I think it'll make the point we're trying to make really well. Sure. Um, okay, let me give a little backstory, folks, because we, we uh, James and I had a little talk before the show started about this. And and um, some of you might have seen, and I'll try to remember to link to this in the, in the show notes, uh, the description section of this video, that there was a U- UK Guardian article recently about a real-life Lord of the Flies situation. And if you're not familiar with Lord of the Flies, it's a book William, written by William Goldman in the, um, or Golding, in the 1960s, he was an alcoholic, and he had a pretty dim view of mankind following World War II and, and, uh, and Korea and all that. And he wrote this book, fiction book, totally out of his head. It wasn't based on any psychology studies or anything like that. It was just a story about a bunch of boys who get stranded on a desert island and end up getting into very extremist behavior, killing one another, violence, tribalism all the evil stuff that we all engage in, taken to an extreme level and demonstrated with this uh, group of boys, English school kids. Uh, So then they get picked up by sailors, you know, after a year or two or something, and one of them has been killed and they're they're just this awful tribal mess. And uh, the end line is, you know, wow, you thought some British boys would have held up better or been a better model of of behavior or something like that. You would have expected more from them. Uh, okay, so that's a story, and everybody buys into it. They go, "Yeah, if if a bunch of boys, if you know, human beings, you scratch the surface, there's the savage underneath. We're just waiting to come out. It's inherent in us. Look at these boys. If they were all left to their own devices, they would do this." And everybody bought into it and believed it, and it and it drastically affected um, our own view of ourselves, socially. So very influential book. I had to read it in school. So pretty much if it gets to be mandatory reading in school, I consider it influential because it's going to influence people's thinking from a very young age. Turns out in the UK Guardian, there was an actual instance of this where a a group of young men uh, from a Catholic boarding school took off one day in a boat, very, very not thinking the thought through. (laughs) They went out there with like a line of fishing reel or something and some sandwiches and ended up falling asleep in this boat drifting off being lost stuck get caught uh, or end up landing on this desert island uh long story short they did great they were out there for like a year year and a half if i remember the story right don't don't quote me on that part read the story but they were there for long enough that they were all declared dead funerals were held the families had given up Sailors get out there, somehow come across these kids, and they get rescued much, much later. They're all fine. They had landed on this island. They all agreed from day one, we're not going to fight. We're going to get along. We're going to figure this out. We're going to survive. And they did. One of them even broke their leg. Now, these are teenage boys, hormone machines <laughs> filled with you know, pubescent hormones, right? These are wild kids. But they weren't wild. They actually conducted themselves quite well. And one of them, like I said, even fell off a Cliff, broke his leg. They said it. I mean, with no medical training whatsoever. And when they all got picked up, the kid's leg was, had actually healed great. So point is, they got along. Sure, there were I'm sure there were scuffles and fights or whatever, but they made it work. That's the reality versus the fiction. But then we look at, okay, so that's one example. Then we look at this robber's cave. And would you like to explain what that situation was?
1: Yeah, I wish I could have had a chance to go look up who did it, because I still can't remember. Uh, but while, while, you, while
0: you talk, I'll look it up.
1: It's the base, I'll, I'll be like, yes, uh, it's the basis for what's called social identity theory. And so robber's cave was a highly unethical experiment. It was performed, I believe, also in the 60s or late 50s. Uh, and... The, the researcher whose name I can't recall took these boys.
0: Muzar Sharif.
1: Yes. That's it.
0: Yep. Famous social yeah. psychologist.
1: Yes. Sharif. He took these boys to a campsite called robber's cave. Uh, these would have been, you know, adolescents. Uh, I think they're white somewhere like middle, upper middle class boys. And he put them in two different campsites. The two groups of boys did not know the existence of each other. And you know, the, they named them the rattlesnakes on the one side and, you know, made them a team. And then he made he named them the eagles on the other camp and made them a team mm-hmm. and Then had them do all these bonding activities. And is that right? Rattlesnakes yeah. and eagles?
0: Yeah, they were 12 year old boys and they were 22 in the study, unknown to each other and all from white middle class backgrounds. Protestant, two parent background. None of the boys knew each other prior to the study.
1: And so they were separated from one another for some period of time, a week or so, had no idea the other group was there. And then he started to manipulate the situation. He would have it be to where, by the way, there's another group of boys. And, you know, the reason that we have to have lunch in this bad place is because the other group trashed the lunch place. And it would tell both of them- the
0: Eagles and the Rattlers, by the way. You had that right. And they even even, uh, stenciled their names onto their shirts and they had flags yep exactly right, so they population.
1: had identifying they, they had identifying markers that they, that they made for themselves yeah and so they each developed their own little internal culture. These things kind of got escalated to where he'd start to let them see the other group and within a couple of weeks the thing went to mayhem and they had to stop the experiment and get the boys out of there for their own safety because the tribalism had gotten so big that it was more like the the fiction book Lord of the Flies. And, you know, they were running raids on each other, and it was starting to get reckless and almost violent. Um, This in-group, you know, versus out-group thinking really had flourished, where you had two different tribes of people. And then, uh, of course, they were, and this was the point that you had raised, so maybe I should let you raise it. But it wasn't that they
0: discovered each other organically. Exactly. They were agitated. And I think that if we're going to look at these two incidents or this experiment, one of them was a calculated premeditated experiment. The other was just organic. It just happened. And I can't obviously say that these boys who got stuck on this island are representative of all of humanity. But it's the only example we've got that directly refutes what we're thinking would happen in fiction versus the reality. It's polar opposite reality. So... You take a group of boys very similar to these guys who crash landed, you agitate the hell out of them by dividing them into two teams, creating, you take a week to, identify, to uh, establish group identity, and then you turn them against each other and then assert, oh, look at, look at how bad we all are because <laughs> this is what we do. But if you take the agitator out of the equation, that's not how that social lineup has to happen. And I just found that conflict, that 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 added element, to be probably more important than maybe the experimenter realized. It's really interesting because
1: what he was what was specifically happening was that he was agitating two things: one is group identity, and the other is conflict theory. Which, if you don't know the origin of the term conflict theory, that that goes back to Marx, also. And so now. You have agitators who are trying to position people with some kind of a group identity, uh, rattler, eagle, liberal, conservative, libertarian, and then all of a sudden, they're trying to say that these groups are in conflict with one another, and they're trying to exacerbate that. That's where I get really concerned with the premise in in black feminism and critical race theory and intersectionality which is now kind of blossomed into this this idea of positionality which uh is described in the literature as positionality must be intentionally engaged uh positionality is declaring all of your group identity markers i'm a white man but you know this or that yeah whatever it happens to be uh, to, you know as a, a, a good example actually is somebody that i saw that was saying as a black man I understand systemic oppression, the experience of systemic oppression as a black person, but as a man, I don't understand what my, you know, sisters experience under patriarchy and contribute to that. So I have to defer to them, I have to defer to women, but white men need to listen to me and, you know, so on. So you have to do this. So they, they put this identity model forward where it's like, no, we're going to lean, we're going to stop being colorblind, we're going to lean into a social identity category. We're going to make it politically relevant. And now we're going to, going to explore it through critical theory, which is a form of conflict theory. And so we're going to agitate you into believing you have a social identity and our social identities are in conflict. Right. And that is now taken to be the overwhelming model of how we're supposed to in, engage with identity issues. It's taught in our schools. It's, ta- it's the backbone of what's happening in a lot of our universities. It's being imported into it. Like that's what diversity training at your office is. It's being imported into the workplace. It's, it's being put into the government. I mean, it's literally our entire society is on fire with turning the whole place into robber's cave.
0: Let me throw this out as a conclusionary sort of statement, if I might uh, invent that word. I just hit on, I just realized something really disturbing about this whole thing. So let me throw in one more identity oh, please. Because, Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: because I don't want to come off on like I'm just saying this is a problem from the left because it's certainly not. Because the conservative Where movement, I was going,
0: that's right. Okay, you, Then you can do it. Well, what, okay, I, I'm curious what you wanted to say actually. So that
1: started in the it, 70s, uh huh, in 1971. In fact, you can even date this this whole idea, you can. Throw some names on it, like Newt <clears throat> Gingrich, and you—I mean, there are, you can actually go and read the documents. You can read the names where a capital C conservative identity was put forward, and it was supposed to be conceived of as in opposition to mm-hmm. the liberal agenda under the so-called New Deal order, which is why they're constantly picking it—you know, trying to undo the New Deal. Uh, there's complications to this. or parts where it's more critical. That would be kind of like Rothbard, Murray Rothbard. By the way, he was teamed up with the critical theorists during Vietnam. Uh, you know, he, he was the right-wing side and the left-wing side was, was Herbert Marcuse. But nevertheless, um, so you have a critical side to it, but you also have this kind of main... I don't think Gingrich is a critical theorist. Uh, he was a neo... He's a neocon. And so you have this conservative identity, though. And conservative identity has to be asserted against the liberal hegemony, this progressive hegemony that started really with the New Deal, started with the establishment of the Federal Reserve. And these are the the regulatory administrative state. And these are the things that have to be torn down. So you have a conservative identity that's also using conflict theory. Mm -hmm. uh, That's When you start looking at how we got so existentially polarized, and this is why I said earlier 1968 becomes so relevant, because that's really where both the left and the right fractured. Uh, not from each other, but within themselves into a new left and an old left and a new la- a new right and an old right, right. Uh, neoconservatism versus old right and um, the old left versus the new left, as they were actually called. And so you have this whole, like, huge fracture point had a lot to do with the Vietnam War, as a matter of fact, being the first war on television, had a lot to do with, you know, the social agitations and the philosophical agitations that were coming from both critical theory and postmodernism up to that point. Uh, Less postmodernism didn't really get influential to the 70s and 80s in the U.S. context anyway. Mm. But you have this sort of morass in 1968 where, like, all the radicalism kind of happened. Critical theory really started to mainstream, and you do have these entities who are trying to project conflict theory through hardcore identities, conservative, capital C, conservative. I mean, I've watched my f- friends living in the South radicalize around deciding that they identify as conservative for decades. Yeah. It's like they, they have conservative tendencies, they're reasonable people, then all of a sudden they start saying, well, I'm a conservative person, I'm a conservative. Then once they start saying it, it's like all of a sudden they're into like weird shit. It's like they're buying 40 guns, they're having to buy... Literally thousands of rounds of ammo, and I don't care if people want to have guns, and I don't care, I, I you know, fine. But it's like to watch somebody's behavior change radically around the idea that they've now taken on a particular political identity is the interesting thing here.
0: Big time. guns is a
1: vestige of it; it doesn't it, matter
0: exactly. And don't get lost in the minutia of this, folks, because you can, you know, there's trigger words all over the place here with race and color and gender and identity and guns and. Uh, don't get lost in all. Don't don't get distracted by that. We're talking about some basic philosophical points here that drive all of this. That's what we're trying to talk about. We're not trying to talk about guns. We're, we're talking, talking about rattlers yeah. and eagles. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We're talking about you know groups being created through identity politics, if you will, or identity ideology, and festered that this conflict is you know is created by people who are stirring the pot with these activist philosophies, if you will. And that's where it comes out. This is this whole thing about where is this coming from? Well, from the academic world, this is where it's coming from. And it leaks over into the ideological world. People start thinking certain ways. Politicians have to get on board or, or people aren't gonna listen to them. These key words start being used that don't mean what you think they mean, but you use them anyway. Because you think that you're saying one thing when they are saying something completely different. And that's where this gets really weird, really fast and kind of hard to understand. So I'm hoping that you know we've, we're putting this in a way that it makes it clear that that we're talking about people who are who are saying on a veneer basis, on a social basis, they're saying equal rights, equal equality of, you know, uh, let's have a level playing field. Let's get everybody on the same page but you go just a little bit deeper and you see, no, that's not what they're doing at all. What they're doing is actually fostering and creating conflict because that's what they think is the inevitable condition of man anyway. So just run with it and let's just do it and let's just have a race war. And we've got that happening on the left, not just on the right. We talk about, you know, I talk about the neo-Nazis and the and the Charlottesville and these guys protesting with guns now. and This kind of stuff. These guys want to spark a race war. Just listen to Daryl Davis tell you all about it. He's friends with these people, right? And he knows what they talk about. They talk about sparking a race war. And I couldn't help but think with everything we've talked about in this podcast, how is what they're doing, how is what these guys on the left are doing with these deep, heavy conflict philosophies any different? And how are they not sparking their own brand of race war and insisting that it be that way? And it must be because that's natural law, and it's right, and it's good, and this is how things have to be.
1: They think that they can control it by pointing it in the opposite direction.
0: And they think that, which is... The classic mistake in history. Yes. (laughs) You You think you're going to rile a bunch of people up, and then you're going to be the one who's going to be in control of it. That is the mistake Every single revolutionary leader is made in history. and this is
1: I keep getting made fun of and I get called out by editors and I get, compl- I had an editor complaining, making fun of me for it on Twitter today, in fact. Wow. I keep using the metaphor of a dragon. You raise a dragon thinking it's not going to burn your house down.
0: Right, right. That's right. Good. Exactly. Good point. You know. Wow, man, <laughs> a little deep, huh? I, I, I contacted um, Dr. Lindsay because I wanted to talk about wokeness because it had come up recently, on, uh, come across my plate, and like I said, I'd even been experiencing a little bit of it. Um, and then we go all in on this. This, is, uh, this has been fascinating. Yep, there's a better way. Yeah.
1: These issues matter, and there's a better way. That's right. Uh, people have, I mean... Again, it doesn't matter where you are, left, right, whether it's your demographic identity, whether it's your political identity, people really who are are thoughtful and want things to actually get better need to stop and think for a minute and really decide if they want to invest in those kinds of identities or if they want to um, realize that the kids across the park are just more kids, you know, if you will. That's right. That they, you could get to know, you can get along, you can disagree about some things. You can still have the rattlers and the eagles who have friendly competition and have their own thing. So it doesn't have to turn into to Lord of the Flies. You don't have to invest that much in your political identity. I'm not even saying ideology, identity. You can have a political ideology and maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Depends on you. But when you take up a political identity and think about this stuff within, again, wokeness, the personal is political is one of their core mantras. You are, by your very nature, a political entity on one side or the other of the, as they actually frame it, it's not race war; it's identity wars, because queer isn't a race, but it is a core identity for them. Right. Good point. So it's it. So your identity your i your intersectional mix of identities becomes politics. Right. You don't have to accept that. We can just like as Helen phrased it, I think, writing in our, our forthcoming book, um, she she phrased it something like the liberal view of homosexuality is some people are gay, get over it. Mm. And that's it. Mm. Some people are conservative, get over it. Mm. Some people mm. are 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 progressive get over it it's that's how it works and we should think that we should look that uh, reflect that back on ourselves though right you don't have to take on the political identity you don't have to keep throwing as we started out talking about you don't have to keep throwing rocks at the cathedral uh, or the other cathedrals of society it's actually possible to divest oneself of a political identity and try to get identities and things that maybe matter like family or local community or a hobby that you're actually interested in. I do martial arts, my closest community is people across every possible political orientation you can imagine who actually like the same martial art I do. And then some other martial arts too, or whatever, we're friends. And so, you know, you can get in, it can be based in activities, it can be based in community, civic engagement, things you care about. It doesn't all have to be politics all the time.
0: Exactly. And this idea that, you know, you got to cancel other people if they disagree with you on something. You know, this has really got to stop. It's I, dangerous. I disagree with all kinds of people on all kinds of things, but, it, but I don't, you know, it just as a reflection. I mean, you know, I'm not going to go troll somebody else's channel or social media page or something because I disagree with them about something. Okay, we got a disagreement, fine. But then when it becomes like, I have to comment on our disagreement by insulting you deeply and personally. You know as a person you're a, you know you're a narcissist you're a this you're that you're a this phobe you're that phobe. You're not talking, you're not communicating there. That's not getting along and that's not even trying to get along. And we've got to get over that because it's just destroying our society. That's my plea. <laughs> thanks. That's a, that's a good point to
1: end, man. That's yeah, strong. Yeah,
0: let's land it up. That thanks very much for helping me with this and for contributing to my podcast this week. I really, really appreciate it. I think we said I think we covered some very good very good, good ground. We definitely did. I, I'm excited about this. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much. And how um remind everybody again, how do you prefer to be contacted if people have questions for you directly or want to want to reach out to you for some reason? Um and
1: you can And My direct messages for wisdom or folly are open <laughs> on Twitter at Conceptual James, so you can reach me there. Uh, if you know how to go to my bio, you can figure out my email address, and you can actually email me as well. I'm not private about what that is. I don't hide it. So either way, um, I will warn people. I won't do it ever without permission, but I'm thinking about on my – I've started a platform, New Discourses, mm-hmm. uh, at newdiscourses.com and uh i've been kind of coming along to this idea i think i'm going to experiment with and i might do for a while it may become kind of normal a, a feature of james explains and if i do this it's like if you send me a question i won't publish anything you've written without permission but there's every likelihood i'll publish at least my answer and frame your question up and if you give me permission to be quoted it'll look kind of like dear abby if i think the question's good enough so you know, reach out if you want, we can talk, but I would love to like what we just did where we worked through this Mm -hmm. is what I like doing kind of best. And I feel most comfortable with. So, uh, you know, feel free to send those questions and you might end up um, getting written back to, but then published about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. Cool. All right, folks. Well, any questions, comments, or feedback, leave it in the comment section below on my channel here at YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I very, very, very much appreciate your feedback. I really do. Whether it is good, bad, or sideways, I'm okay with that. But I'm not okay, as I want to say and will continue to say because I think it's important. I am not down with being insulted. And if you don't come at me, I won't come at you. How's that? <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a healthy bargain. And um, I very much would like to engage with people, and I have something of a community right here on my own channel, but I don't want a toxic one. and um, And it is a struggle for me as a free speech advocate to, you know, figure that out, what the line is on that, but I'm working it out. So, all right, folks, thanks for coming around, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.